1: I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am thrilled to say that this episode of Anchored is made possible by the fantastic people at Rio Products. All of Rio's lines are designed and thoroughly tested by passionate fly fishers. I am proud to lump myself into that group. Since my entrance into this sport, Rio has been my fly line of choice, and with the Rio Gold being the best-selling trout line in the world, it's clear I'm not the only one who feels this way. Find out more about the best fly line for your fishery at www.rioproducts.com. Here you will find fly lines made specifically for just about every species you could think to target on a fly. Even if you're not in the market for a new line at this time, between the blog, how-to video series, line descriptions, and the Rio Line Selector Guide, you're guaranteed to learn something new. Again, that's www.rioproducts.com. Lewis Cahill is one of the most captivating people I've ever met. I first heard of Lewis when his photography popped up in the fly fishing scene, and there was no denying that the man has talent. He then went on to start the popular website, Ginkin Gasoline, and, well, the rest is history. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Lewis to see if I can put a voice to the man who usually speaks to us through text and photographs.
2: Born in a town called Danville, Virginia, which is South Central Virginia, right on the North Carolina border. The city limits on the border are exactly the same.
1: And your parents were from?
2: My parents were born and raised in the area. Okay. You know, my mom and dad grew up there. Most of my family, a couple of generations back, was from that area. You know, they. Um, my mom and dad knew each other from when they were in second grade. They grew That's up together. So cool. It's you know, it's a really small town. I think the, the the population now and for the last my lifetime is maybe fifty thousand people.
1: Oh you wow! Know. Okay,
2: and the Dan River uh, runs right through the middle of town there, and, and there's a, it was famous for um, for a couple of things, I guess, but the Dan River Mills was a textile mill there, so they oh, made okay. they made textiles, and it was a textile mill town. When I was growing up, we were. We're always around the river. My grandfather was an inventor. He invented the machinery that retreads tires. And he had a hundred thousand square foot machine shop on the river. And me and my cousin would go down and we would catch catfish and stuff in the river out behind his plant. And because we were downstream from the textile mill, they were always, they made blue jeans. They made denim for blue jeans. And so my whole time growing up, the river was purple because of the indigo dye that they used we're catching big catfish out of this purple river and I was a little kid and it's the only river I'd ever seen you know and it's actually if you go further upstream it's a trout river and it's re- and it's really pretty and you know but I grew up on this purple river and then I remember going somewhere else and seeing the river and it was green and I thought huh everybody's is a different color
0: <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> right? I love you I love right,
2: it <laughs> right it was just like I just assumed everybody's river was purple and then you
1: know. it was just like a rainbow
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, right exactly so I I figured other oh, people have red rivers and blue rivers and, you know, all the, you know. Why not?
1: So, what about siblings? Do you have any siblings?
2: I do have our brother and sister, both older.
1: Oh, you're the baby. I am, yeah. And you're 54, we decided. I am, yeah. And you do not look 54. <laughs> That's true. Thank you. It's not even a pickup line. You do not look 54. <laughs> true story. No. Okay, so did your siblings fish?
2: Yeah, my brother does actually. My brother is a big bass fisherman. Oh yeah. Alright, so he's the guy with the boat that goes 70 miles an hour and the Is
1: 40, it sparkly?
2: 14. It is totally, it looks like a jukebox. Totally, <laughs> totally. He's got a triton, big like 21 foot triton. And it scares the hell out of me. Like, there's nothing more terrifying to me than going really fast in a boat. Like I'm like, do not care for it. <laughs> got it? So yeah. I always say my brother and I are separated by a mutual hobby because what I think of as fishing, <laughs> like he hates, he thinks that's the, like the most miserable thing in the world. Oh if it, no. Okay. If it involves his feet being cold and he can't listen, to the race. He's unhappy, right? Yeah. And, and I'm totally not like, I, you know, when I was a kid, like everybody else, I, you know, I gearfished, right? But I discovered fly fishing when I was about eight years old. My grandfather fly fished, you know, a little. He was one of those guys that carried a spinning rod and a fly rod, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. Cool. And, I like that actually.
2: Yeah. And, yeah. and he taught me that. to fly cast. And I don't know, it just. For, for some reason that just resonated with me. That was, and I don't think I ever picked up the spinning rod again. My grandfather was a brilliant man. This was the inventor, right? And he was, you know, he was the most brilliant man I've ever known. And he, he, was not especially a kid-oriented dude. <laughs> right?
0: Right. right? Yeah.
2: So I got one casting lesson from him. He took me in the backyard. He gave me an old bamboo fly rod, which I still own. It was the only fly rod I owned until I was 22 years old. You're serious. I'm dead serious. You
1: learned on cane. Uh, yeah. On bamboo. I, this I, is awesome.
2: I never fished anything but bamboo till I was 40. Right? And so I had this bamboo rod, and I backed over it with the car. No. Yeah, when I was 22. And then at that was kind of a mess. And then I discovered how much bamboo rods cost. Now the bamboo rod he gave me was like one of those old hardware store. It was super cheap and it literally had a paper clip for a stripping guide. Like this tripping guy was a paper clip he'd bent because the other one had fallen off, right? And so that's what it was. So I fished that for, what's that, 22 minus 8? That's, you know, 16 years. Yeah. Or whatever. I, I, that's, that was my fishing rod. That was what I fished everything. It was an old seven weight. I don't even know the name because it didn't it have a name on it. I no. don't know what brand it was. It just never had any kind of, you know, stickers or anything on it. So I fished that rod till I was 22 and I backed over it with a car and was so depressed. You know, and, and literally there were years there where I didn't fish because I couldn't afford a fishing rod. I, I don't, I don't come for money. I still don't have money. You know, it's just, that's just the reality of it, right? And so I met a man named Gary Lacey who is, um, an amazing bamboo rod builder and he taught me to build bamboo rods. So for years I built my own bamboo rods and that's all I fished were the rods that I built. So I was the only person in the world that was fishing bamboo because it was all I could afford.
1: So backwards when you think about it. Exactly.
2: Right. But I had, I had, um, I used to be really involved in the furniture building community, as so I build furniture. And like I said, my grandfather, um, I grew up in a machine shop, so I have, you know, those skills. So I was making my own ferrels, and my own real seat hardware and splitting the cane and making the rods just so I could go out and fish, you know? And for years, that was all I fished. And then, of course, as I, you know, as I kind of got into the business and I started meeting people, and, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna lie, but it was so many generous people have given me so many rods to fish, you know, which I'm so grateful for. So I would never have the gear that I have now if it wasn't for those folks, and I love them. And I Still fish the bamboo once in a while, but you know I'm I'm really really spoiled with great options for what to fish with.
1: But. Well, let's dive into that. Yeah, just backtracking a little bit. What about high school? Because you are so much personality and you're such a character. Some people I'll skip past the high school thing, but you, I'm genuinely curious about what you were like in high school.
2: Wow, well, I was a problem. Was what I-,
1: well, <laughs> I? I gathered that. I mean, I knew that. But what about fishing? Were you fishing then?
2: Um, yeah, I, yeah, I fished, and it, it's interesting because so I was, you know, I was in a. Band. I was a singer in a band and I had long hair and my friends and I would we, you know, we would literally come to school like dressed for like the guys from Clockwork Orange, you know, and stuff like like literally we were just anything we could do to fly in the face of any kind of authority. You know, like we were a disaster. And um paid n- no attention to my schools. I either I either aced a class or I got an F in it. That was it. Those are my only two modes. I either knew what we were doing coming in, or you know, that was it. So It was bizarre because I would fail English and get an A in physics. Because, but I grew up with a grandfather who was an inventor. I grew up in a machine shop. I understood that stuff, you know, before I got there, right? And I took, um, I, I talked my way into the creative writing class in my high school because. I didn't want to write a term paper, and it was the only English class where you didn't have to write a term paper, right? <laughs> but you had to have a member of the English department faculty recommend you for the class. They wouldn't just let anybody into it. Okay. And all my English teachers thought I was, like, you know, mildly afflicted. So it was not going to happen. I'm dyslexic. I'm, I'm wildly dyslexic. Yeah, which and, is so uh,
1: crazy to me. Crazy, Right,
2: right, that I ended up writing for a living, right, because it's the hardest thing for me to do, right? Yeah. But it was really challenging, and I, I couldn't spell. My handwriting is illegible. You know, I was a mess. Right. So nobody in the English department was going to recommend me for this class. So I ended up going to the guy who taught the class and I just, I just, I stalked him. Basically I hounded him into letting me into the class and then did really well in that. And so then I ended up being the editor of the literary magazine. Oh wow. At my high school, right? So, so okay. I was this completely iconoclast, just, you know, I was the last person anybody wanted being the editor of the literary magazine. So <laughs> it was really militant under my <laughs> leadership, right? I just, I brought in all my friends, like the guy that played guitar in my band was our lead illustrator. Oh and, my goodness. You what? know, so it was, and it was awesome. It was a lot of fun, but I, uh, I was not as particularly studious a student and that led to my not going to college. So basically I, I, you know, live did not live up to my potential and disappointed everyone.
1: Not
0: necessarily.
2: <laughs> I mean,
1: well, are you happy?
2: No, totally. Yeah. Well, then you didn't. No, I'm being any Okay, good. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So tell me about. So you graduated high school. You did, did not go to college.
2: I did not. Well, I went to art school basically. Oh. I did. I went to um. I went to the Art Institute of Atlanta, which is one of those like totally canned like schools that's like that popped up in the eighties. You know, and right. um there's actually some big lawsuit going on now. And if I, it turns out if I had not paid my student loans back, I could get them forgiven by the government now because the school was a sham. Oh <laughs> right, so they're out of business, I can say that. Um, oh, that's
1: actually really awful. Yeah, right. But yeah. I
2: um but I had, so to back up and, and make a little bit of sense out of that, right? Yeah, I yeah, had. Um, one of the things that I excelled at in school was photography. I'd taken pictures since I was a kid, right? I was you know kind of a nerd about it when I was when I was a little kid I think I was like 6 years old I got a Polaroid land camera so this is like in the 60s right, right? And there's in my, um, mother's photo album, there's a little Polaroid from like, you know, 1969. It is, it is actually 1969. And it's where I did two exposures and had a picture of my friend and he jumps out. So he looks like a ghost and written in my little like child handwriting, it says multiple exposure test, 1969. Seriously? Yeah. Seriously.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like, God.
2: like, so, so I found myself in photography class in school, uh, which also came from the literary magazine because to run the literary magazine, I had to, Learn to do everything because we didn't have a budget, right? So I literally printed it. I, I took the pictures. I literally printed the magazine in the print shop at the vocational building at school. So I got involved in the cameras. And the guy that ran the print shop also taught the photography program. So he told me, he said, you know, you've got a knack for this. You should come and take photography. And so I did. And I had been... Um, Carrying newspapers my whole life. I started off as a little kid carrying newspapers, and then later on, I sold newspapers in the hospital. It was my job. I would buy a bundle of newspaper, walk around the hospital, and sell them to patients, right? And so, this photography teacher of mine was good friends with the fellow who ran the photography department at the newspaper. And so, when I graduated high school, he recommended me as a photographer, and so they hired me as a newspaper photographer. Wow. And I was this – I was a mess. I had this hair down to my waist, and I was, you know, just – that was a problem. Trust me, I was a problem. And so they told me I had to cut my hair to, to get the job. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll cut my hair. And they are like, it's got to be short. And I'm like, okay, I'll cut it short. So I was like, okay, what kind of short haircut do I want? So my sister-in-law, who I adore, was in cosmetology school and learning to cut hair at the time. And so I went to her with a picture of Johnny Rotten, and I said, can you make my hair look like this? And she said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so we went in the basement, and I hung upside down from a pipe, a water pipe in the basement, by my uh, by my knees, right? And she just whacked my hair off at odd angles. And so I went back into work at the newspaper, which was (laughs) apparently not what they were picturing. You were just
1: like a born shit disturber. uh,
2: Yes, actually. Yeah. And so I ended up getting fired. Um, I wonder, for,
1: why? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why
2: I was a problem. I was not. And, you know, I, and I don't I, honestly, I don't think I was especially good at the job. Right. Like I never took two seconds to think about what the job was, really. You know, I was just running around taking pictures. If they told me what to take pictures of, I would do it. But anyway, it, it's it's done, you know, getting fired. That was like the first time in my life that I'd ever actually failed at something I wanted to do. Yeah. Like, I liked this job. This was cool. So it motivated me to go to photography school. So, so I went down to Atlanta and uh, my dad was a veteran and his veterans benefits paid for my school. So, you know, so that was perfect. So I moved down with a friend and did that. And then I ended up getting a job as an assistant at a photo studio, at a commercial advertising photo studio. And I basically was a slave. I worked 80 to 100 hours a week, six, seven days a week for $50 a day. <laughs>
0: yeah, right? <laughs>
2: yeah. And, and just did everything, you know, it was, it was crazy, but, but I worked, I worked my way up and it's, it's a funny story. I won't take much time with it, you can but take I, all
1: the time in the world.
2: Okay. I went in and I was, I couldn't find a job when I got out of school. It was really hard. I, I worked for like two days and, and I was, I was so depressed when I was, I went twice to apply for a job driving a truck. And I literally sat and cried in the parking lot oh. and drove away twice. I couldn't do it, right? Like I was so, I was so on fire. I was so passionate about photography and I wanted to do it so bad. And the second time I did that, I stopped on the way back at a, at a Wendy's to get a chicken sandwich. I stopped at the drive through and I pulled up to get my chicken sandwich and the guy at the window, he hands me my chicken sandwich and he goes, Hey, I know you. We went to photography school together. Small world. It was like I look up and there's this like neon sign over this guy that says, this could be you. So I was terrified, right? I was so depressed. And the next day the phone rang. It was a guy, uh, it was a photography studio in town, ended up, very quickly within these guys had just moved to town within a few years, they were the biggest act in town and their assistant was going out of town for a week. They needed somebody to come in. They just moved studios. They need somebody to paint the studio. Okay. So I came in and for a week I did nothing but paint the photo studios. Happiest kid in the world. I was painting a real photo studio, right? <laughs> like I was thrilled, right? right? And the second week his partner had been out of town too. And he came back and we started doing some photo shoots. I was like involved in doing actual photo shoots, you know? And so I was, I was thrilled and it, it never occurred to me that, Oh, shit, that's it. It's over. Right. At the end of that week, that Friday, it's over there. Like drop off your invoice with the, you know, bookkeeper and thanks. It was really fun working with you and all this.
0: Oh,
1: ouch.
2: And I'm like, damn, you know what? I went home and I was just depressed all weekend and I sit around wonder, what am I going to do? Right. And so Monday morning, I just got up and went back down there. I was like, Hey, what are you guys doing? You got, you know, do you need help with anything? And they, and they're like, No, did you come drop off an invoice? I'm like, No, I just thought I'd come see what you were doing, you know, and they, they sent me home and Tuesday I got up and went down there and I think they sent me home again Tuesday. And I think Wednesday they found something for me to do. And I pretty quickly figured out that if I got in there early enough and I found something that you're doing, I was like, Hey, you know, that back room's really a mess. You want me to clean that up? You mean hustle this stuff off to the dumpster, and if I got in there and I found something to do, they'd let me stay and do it, and they'd pay me for it, right?
1: You're a hustler, so, man.
2: Yeah, they never hired me. I, I worked there for three years. I ended up being the studio manager. I ran the place, but they never actually gave me a job. <laughs> yeah, I just I would invoice them. It was I was you know a freelance contractor, right? So they didn't like deduct taxes or pay insurance, and they paid me fifty bucks a day every day I showed up and worked.
1: <laughs> I think it's actually incredibly inspiring. But
2: that's how I learned photography, right? Because I didn't really get an education in school. Right, right. So that's how I learned to do what I do is I, I watched everything those guys did. And part of the deal was that you could use the studio after hours.
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay, right. I had a key it's all coming together. Now I'm getting this
2: right and yeah. I could shoot there after hours. So what I would do is I would work 16 or 18 hours you know, for a day. And then after they left, I would shoot my, I would set up and shoot my own projects and everything had to be torn down. Their rule was they didn't want to know you'd been there. Right. So frequently I just finished hustling all the stuff off to the dumpster and into the car when they showed up to work again the next day a day a week or two days a week, I would just, I would not sleep. I would be there all night working, you know? And then sometimes we worked, you know, we'd work 36 hours straight or I would, you know, they'd go home and go to sleep and I'd be in the dark room processing the film, making prints. They'd come in the next morning. I'd be back at work. So I did that for, for three years.
1: This is before digital photography and yeah, this photography we have today.
2: Right. Yeah. This is all film. We're shooting, um, you know, four by five, eight by 10 and two and a quarter film, you know, and, and I was, by the end of it in charge of everything we had we had three assistants that worked there it was a fairly big operation you know two photographers and three assistants and then we had a bunch of stylists and stuff that came through but that's that's how i learned my craft and then i went on to be an advertising photographer myself you know and so i ran a studio for many many years uh, and and made a good living i had you know i i just really kind of figured the industry out on kind of an apprentice type situation and made the contacts and learned the people and learned how to do it. And so I was, I was a production photographer, right? It's very different from what I do now, right? It's not like going out on the, on the river and taking pretty pictures of people fishing. I was the guy that had to, you know, figure out how to make stuff happen and, you know, build the sets and create things, you know, out of nothing, right? Or, you know, so the, the jobs that, that I shot, they were, they were big productions and they were average. And of course, this is like back in the, in the eighties and nineties, right? So, but but they average probably like fifty to eighty thousand dollar budgets for a job, yeah. and I started doing this when I was twenty four years old, right? And all the people that I worked for were in their fifties. And that time, the business was very different, right? It was like very much like Mad Men. It was like my wife and I watch Mad Men, and it's like that—that's where that's the industry that we worked in when okay. we were young, right? And watched it evolved into, into what it is today, right? And to get corporations and mature, grown adults to trust some crazy twenty four year old with a camera with a budget like that mm-hmm. was was challenging in the day.
1: Yeah, you know? and how, I mean, how did you show them your portfolio? Because this is before the days of everything being online. You don't just hand yeah, that's someone right. a website back then.
2: That's right. You so had, how
1: did you get your talent across to them?
2: You had to walk into their office. First of all, you had to call and call and call and call and call and call and call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right, right,
1: And then try to get a booking.
2: Th- that's right, yeah. Print all your material out. Decision. Right. And you would walk in, it would be prints or it would be transparencies. And so my first, my first phase of my uh, commercial career, I shot only still life. And then later I started shooting people. Oh, okay. Is Um, it
1: a lot harder to shoot people? No, it's just different.
2: Okay, It's just different. And I I actually love it. I love doing it. Is that Um, your favorite
1: of all the areas of photography? You know what? It's
2: funny that the thing that I miss the most is working in the studio. You know, like studio portraiture and studio still life stuff. I love that. I love, I love working with light. You know, that's, that's a passionate thing for me. And the art of portraiture is such a subtle art. You know, it's not about so much about capturing. It's not about capturing what people want to put forward. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what everybody gets right. It's about capturing that telling moment. That that people don't know they're letting out. Right. Mm. So I'll give you a good example of that. There's a portrait. You can go to my website and see there's a portrait I did of John Garrick. John was an inspiration to me as a writer. Right. Like I read all of his books. I I just devoured his books. Right. And um, never dreamed I would meet the man. Never ever dreamed I'd meet the man, and it was at IFTD in Denver. I was in the Whiting Farms booth, and I'm standing there looking at Hackle, and John Geerick walks up and stands next to me, and proceeds to tell me how to kill a chicken with a stick. Okay, that is so, John.
1: Nice to meet you, John. Yeah, it was
2: this pivotal moment, right? And I and I talked I'm with him so for a few minutes right now.
1: Right, <laughs> I'm so jealous. Yeah, right.
2: And so I um I had these little mini portfolios I was carrying around with my pictures, right. And I, and I just before he walked away, I gave him one. I said, I said, take this. Um, this is what I do. I'm a photographer. I would love to take a photograph of you sometime. So unbeknownst to me, he took this thing home and he showed it to everybody he knew. And he's like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Look at this. This is this guy's business card. Right. And there was like, like two dozen pictures and a little tiny one of those little Apple books that's like two inches by three inches. Right. And, um, so, um, I was like, okay. And he gave me his card. Right. And, and being John Girac, there was no, all his business card said was John Gerak, editor at large and his physical street address. <laughs>
1: that, no phone number.
2: That was it. No phone number, no email, no oh, URL, good. right? That his physical good. address. Yeah. So I wrote him a letter. Of course you uh, did. So I wrote John a, I hope so. a, a letter yeah. And and told him what a pleasure it was meeting him yeah. and how much I would love to come and photograph him sometime. And he wrote me back. <laughs> right, right.
1: So like a year later, you guys Yeah, right. <laughs> what what seems it.
2: like it these days, right? Yeah. <laughs> the
1: US post's a lot better than the Australian or the Canadian post. So it, Exactly, okay.
2: <laughs> exactly, right. So so I got the letter back and so we you know, we corresponded that way a little bit. I think the next time you actually picked up the phone and called me. Oh, cool. And so um I went out for I think it was probably for IFTD the next year, right? And in Colorado, and so we made arrangements to get together, and we fished, and I, I went to John's house, and um, I went down in the basement, and and you know his basement. Oh my God, do you remember the story of Aladdin and the magic lamp? And he goes into the cave and there's all the treasure yeah. and the jewels and the, that is John Garak's basement. Every bamboo fly rod oh, ever yeah. made, Fishing every yeah, beautiful yeah. old shotgun, <laughs> yeah. every classic reel. I mean, it's just like, <gasps> I mean, it's like literally full to the ceiling oh know, my with goodness. all this amazing stuff, you know, and there's this desk over in the corner and I'm like, holy shit, I'm like in the, you know, the pleasure dome, right? I'm
1: like, <laughs> Happening right, right
2: now, yeah. And the, um, out of the office, there's a door that opens onto a little uh, paved patio under his deck. So there's the deck above, right, and the patio below. So I brought a canvas backdrop and some lights, and I hung up the canvas backdrop from the deck out on the on the patio and got the lights all set up. And John comes out, he, um, so he's been, he's coming, you know, we've, we've met at the coffee shop into town, right? And he's, he's in his fishing jacket and hat and, you know, he's got his cup of coffee. And so he comes down and he takes off his hat and his jacket and he puts down his coffee and he combs his hair and he gets all perfect. And he stands in front of the lens and sort of strikes the, the pose that you see on all the books and you know, magazine articles and stuff. And I'm like, mm, I didn't come all the way from but Georgia nope. for this. <laughs> right.
1: So I just, you kinda, do not live inside the box. So yeah, no, 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 you're no, 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 outside no, of it, Yeah.
2: Right. So I kind of went over and I picked up his jacket again and uh, I was like, I want you to put this back on. He puts his jacket back on, and I, and I picked up his hat, and I said, maybe let's try this, too. Let me just put the hat back on. Let's see how that looks, you know, and he puts the hat back on. And I, and I picked up his cup of coffee, and I handed it to him. But this is something I learned early on as a portrait shooter. There is nothing more comforting to a person who is uncomfortable in front of the camera than a warm cup of coffee.
1: That is so true.
2: Yeah, right. You hold a warm so cup of coffee true. in yes. your hands, and it just puts you so at ease, right? So I handed him his coffee back, and he looks at me, and he goes, You realize this is exactly how I walked in here, right? And I said, yep. And we, and we shot a few photos and it kind of went along and we got to talking because that's really the thing. The thing about taking a portrait of somebody is that the tone of that photograph comes from the photographer, not the subject, Mm -hmm. right? It's just like the light, the light, it comes from the light, but, and it bounces back. Right. So you set the tone of that photo shoot. Right. And we got to talking about something. And then the shot that was clearly the photo, right. Was this just contemplative moment where he was thinking about something we'd said, you know, and it was, it wasn't an action. It was a reaction. You know, it was that, it was that quiet moment. And you just see, I'm like, that's the man whose voice rings in my head from reading all of those books that's him. And that's the thing I miss in photography, right? I I don't get to do that anymore because I'm, unfortunately, you know, just the nature of the business, right? I can't afford to maintain a studio. Yeah. Right. And so for a photographer, a studio is like a block of marble to a sculptor. It's this void where you can create anything. Anything is possible in a studio. And I, I loved that. And I miss it. It's not that I don't love what I do now, but that was just such a craft. And, I I started in photography in at a time when believe this or not, and <laughs> you really Dayton Lewis here. <laughs> um, I started in photography in a time when the New York Times would not publish announcements of photography exhibits in the art section because it was not considered art. That's how my career started. And right, dated. yeah, and then right, and then I spanned my career spanned that to photography becoming the highest form of art and then turning into Instagram, oh, right? Yeah. So I, I literally worked through the golden age of photography, you know? Yeah. And I could choose to be bitter about that and look at that as, oh, you know, it's all gone to hell. Back in my day. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or I can feel really fortunate to have witnessed something really rare and special and to have been part of it you know, at a really special time. So
1: that's optimistic. I like it.
2: I can't have any regrets about that. You
1: know? No, you shouldn't have any regrets. Right. So let's talk about uh, what happens after that then. Okay. With your, with your career. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, all right, you tell me what right. happened. I, I, okay. I don't know what did happen. So right. obviously you, you were fishing then when you were doing a lot of this, yes. this portrait photography. Right. Yeah. So
2: I, you know, there was a while there, there was about 10 years where I didn't fish between the time that I backed over the bamboo rod mm-hmm. in the, in the parking lot at the, you know, convenience store. And all of this time that I was working a hundred hours a week, you know, I had no, I had no fishing rod. There was no time for fishing. Right. And I was in the advertising business. I was in a very high pressure business in a very, the furthest thing you could be from outdoors and nature and, you know, you corporate? was Yeah, sure. I worked, I mean, like American Express and UPS and, you know, 3M and people like those were, you know, were my clients, right?
1: Yeah. Were you happy? Were you happy doing it?
2: (laughs) I guess so. Um, No, I loved it. I, I, I loved it because I like a challenge. Right, right? I I like something that's nearly impossible, and I like doing battle with it. I was the kid that, when you know, when we go to the beach as a little kid, I would my favorite thing to do was to stand in the crashing wave and throw myself into them as hard as I could. Any anything that I take on, I just take on like a bull, like running the bulls, right? Like that's that you know. Yeah,
1: you're such a trip, man.
2: (laughs) It's it's a character flaw. It's not a
1: it's not an asset. Call it what you will. It's obviously getting you somewhere. It's
2: not an asset. I make things much harder than they need to be. but um yeah so i did i enjoyed that you know and i always got recognition for my photos right and i think that's what i fed on mm-hmm. right and and so i don't think i was i don't think i was terrible i certainly knew people that were worse than me but i was a little bit of a prima donna i'm sure you know i was at a very high end of the business and i made a lot of money and i have <laughs> no idea what i did with it <laughs> 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 I, I really, so funny. I really don't. I would do weird stuff with, you know, and I was yeah. just like, you know, I had a big crew. I mean, I had a lot of people working for me and I loved those people and we would finish these big shoots and you know, we'd make a lot of money and I would rent out restaurants and throw huge parties for everybody that worked on the job. And then, you know, within a month, it's like gone, right? But then there's always more pouring in, right? So there's, there was always, there was this tide of money coming Yes, we
1: definitely manage our money differently.
2: Right. Well, I'd never say I'd never had money. And I didn't have any idea how that worked, right?
1: Oh, you yeah. Know, even that it doesn't just grow on this, you know, invisible right. tree. Well, I yeah. didn't
2: see, I didn't see it coming. And right. then, um, and the, the advertising business, you know, from a business standpoint, is the canary in the coal mine, right? It's the first thing to die when yeah. the economy starts to suffer because people, oh, we can't advertise. Which is, of course, they, that's when they need to advertise. But that's another story. But anyway, it all started with the George Bush Al Gore election. And when that election ended in a tie and the Supreme Court, you know, went to the Supreme Court who, you know, inevitably put George Bush in the White House, the advertising business died instantly. Mm. Right? It just all of a sudden things ground to a halt. Right. And in retrospect, what would have been smart would have been to have let all my employees go. You know, and just shuttered the doors and sized down and did something very small, but I tried to keep it going and you know, eventually it just tapped all out, right? Which is fine. It's fine. It it was a, it was a great, it was a great ride, right? But, but the business changed fundamentally. So what happened was the advertising business just came to a crash, right? At the same time that digital photography and computers and the Internet were changing the way we did so many things, and photography itself changed, right? So photography became a commodity, you know, rather than art. The prevalence of stock photography and and Google image search, right, right, just sort of completely changed the landscape at a time when the economy was in such terrible shape that it just never really came back in the same way.
1: Oh, I always right. wondered about that, you know. Okay, right. it, it was okay. this and kind this of makes convergence. Sense. Yeah. yeah,
2: it was this convergence of things. And people think it was digital photography, but it really wasn't digital. Well, that's
1: what I thought it was. Yeah,
2: digital photography is no different. I mean, it's easier than film photography, but it's, it's not ever about the camera. It's the software, not the hardware. It's what's in your head. It's not what's in your hand, right? right. That makes the picture, For right? Sure, yeah.
0: It
2: was, it was the internet. It was, it was Google images and the proliferation of cheap online stock photography. And then what really changed was the way the advertising business worked and where art directors then started grabbing pictures off the internets and putting them to layouts instead of drawing pictures of what they wanted that then had to be created, you know, and that was kind of like the, the nail in the coffin, right? So all this to say that I started, having much more free time on my hands.
1: Oh, okay.
2: So I started spending more time fishing and this is when, this is when I came back to fly fishing in the full on way, right? So I started, I started fishing more and more and I, I bought a four wheel drive uh, Toyota to get up into the mountains to go fishing, right? And so the first weekend I had it, my wife and I went up and we started driving through some forest service roads up in the wilderness and looking at streams and stuff. And I got completely lost out, pulled the truck over and was out with the big forest service map on the hood of the car trying to figure out how to get out of here. And this guy rolls by in a pickup truck and says, hey, are you guys lost? Which was like a redundant question. We were obviously <laughs> lost, right? So he stopped and, and showed us how to get out. And, I, and so, you know, he said, what are you doing up here? He's like, oh, I'm up here doing a little trout fishing. You know, and I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, and so we talked for a little bit. And then um, I, I guess exchanged information. And then like a week later, I got an email from him. Hey, we should go fishing sometime. Oh, And this his name was Dan Flynn. He's one of my best friends. To this day, and cool. he and I tore it up he ha- He was recently divorced at the time, and he's just he's one of the most just intuitive anglers you know that i 've ever known right just a and he's a brook trout nut, just one of these bushwhackers into small you know back streams, and he and I would fish. Two or three days a week all over the place, Georgia and North Carolina and just started burning into it. And I, and then I, of course I had all this time off and not a whole lot to do with myself, right? Because yeah. I hadn't figured that out yet. And so I was fishing 150 days a year, maybe more, you know, just never, which is weird because here, here's how I come to the business, right? Like I'm not a, I'm not the guy who went out and became a guide, you know, and guided people and all this stuff. I was just this guy out beating through the woods on my own, you know, figuring stuff out. And I started um, carrying a little point and shoot waterproof camera my wife gave me for my birthday Hi. right to take pictures when I was fishing and um, one of my clients convinced me to put some fishing pictures on my website. Right, just you know, because this this point we've moved on enough that now photographers have websites and you go on the web to find people. So I put a few fishing pictures on there, and nothing happened. It just it just kind of laid there for like a month. I didn't really announce it or anything. The whole idea was that people would remember me because I was the guy that fly fished, right? Not that people would hire me for fly fishing photos, right? Okay,
1: makes sense. Yeah.
2: Right. (laughs) It was a marketing idea. Yeah. And then um, Eric Rathburn found it and shared it on Moldy Chum. Shared my fly fishing gallery on oh, Moldy so Chum. Okay. And it went crazy. And that next week I sold like four of those images, right? And I saw, and I saw, yeah. Like, hmm. Right. And then I started getting calls from, you know, from rod companies and, um, you know, corkers called me to do some stuff for them. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. I think I'm in the fishing business, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Cause so, to me,
1: you are a photographer when yeah. through your entrance to the industry, To me is your photographer.
2: Right, totally. That's, then that's what, more than you know right i and i'll now i'll get to that in a second but mm-hmm. so so anyway that's what sort of sucked me into the industry right was i started doing more and more stuff for you know for fishing clients and selling stock stuff and also like I, I used to go every year and do catalog shoots for reddington you know we would go out for weeks and and shoot stuff and you know it was a blast i was having fun so it was a nice blend for me of my fishing passion you know and you know my photography you know, and the skills that I developed there. And then what started to happen was I, um, I came to IFTD for the first year. I just like lurked. All right. I didn't come with a portfolio or anything. I just came and I checked out what everybody was doing. And I just kind of watched. I lied to get in. What I did was I came to the, I came to the admissions desk at IFTD and I told them I was with the press. They said, who are you with? I said, I'm with Atlanta Homes and Lifestyle Magazine.
0: You liar. I'm, I'm
2: here to cover the show. And they said, well, do you have any credentials? I said, no, they told me they'd set it up. And, um, and they, they said, we don't have anything here about it. I said, well, hang on a second. I'll call the editor. And so I called a friend of mine who was a writer for Atlanta Homes and Lifestyle, was not the editor, and I'd already arranged this with her up front. And I said, I said okay, yeah, here, they don't have the credentials. Here, will you talk to them? And she said, said hello, this is Soto with Atlanta Homes and Lifestyle, and hung up. So they just thought that we lost the cell call, right? And this I was, is hilarious. And I was, like, I was like, oh, I'll just try to get them back. They're like, oh, it's fine, just here. And, they, and so they let me in.
1: Oh, my God, you're filthy. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So that's how I got into IFTD the first time, right? In
1: Denver? When it was in Denver still? In Denver,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. So I went through the show and then, and then I showed up the next year with a portfolio. Right. Um, and by that time, so, uh, my buddy Joel Dickey, who's, a, um, uh, flats guy down in the Keys now, he was, he was a trout guide in Georgia before okay. that. And he and I knew each other in Georgia, had fished together and, and were friends. So he was there at the show and he introduced me to Bruce Chart, who's now just one of my best friends in the world. Right. Right. And Bruce, anybody who knows Bruce is like, you you know, Bruce is just the most generous guy. I just give you the shirt off his back, he's right? He's
1: Amazing. He'll also yeah. be on the show coming up soon. Awesome. Oh, yeah. you
2: you will enjoy that. I'll I tell you what. Can't wait. There is no one who knows more about fishing than Bruce Chart. Oh my God, he's he like is. a wizard. He is. He is crazy. So what he is? He's kind of like the Rain Man, right? It's like Bruce knows everything there is to know about <laughs> fishing, and he only knows who Barack Obama is because I made him memorize the name. Like <laughs> he could care less. <laughs> right. Right. right? He, could, yeah, yeah. he could care less because it's not fishing, you know, or hockey, or you know, that's, that's the, right. Like, that's right. Or Fishing Transformers. Yeah, so those are the oh, three transformers oh, Transformers. I
1: didn't know that <laughs> one. Fishing,
2: hockey, and transformers. Okay, good You'll snout. have to ask him about Transformers, right? Okay. Ask him how many times he's seen Transformers. That would be entertaining. <laughs> so anyway, um, so I showed Bruce my little book of pictures, right? And he was like, This is awesome. This is awesome. And he carried me around that show and he introduced me to everybody he knows. And the Which is a lot of people. Right. And the <laughs> whole phone book of people who are like some of my best friends in the world, I met that day walking around the show with Bruce Chard. And so I started going and fishing with Bruce, and I started co-hosting um, trips in the Bahamas with Bruce, right? So here I am at this point. I mean, I'm basically, I'm a, trail, I'm a self-educated trail fisherman, right? I am I am the guy who got one casting lesson in my grandfather's backyard with a plate when I was eight years old and figured everything else out myself, right? Right. Could you ask for any better education in the world than just fishing with Bruce Chard every day?
1: Coming up, Lewis speaks with me about the growth of and Gasoline, his responsibility as the operator of such a visible platform, and I may even get the monkey story out of him. Again, thank you to Rio for making this episode of Anchored possible. All Rio lines are made with pride in Idaho, USA. Using industry-leading technology, such as their ultra-low-stretch Connect Core, Rio is always striving to develop the most sophisticated, strenuously tested products available. Visit www.rioproducts.com to learn more.
2: All of these guys hung out with me, and I took pictures of them, and they ended up on magazine covers, and those guys taught me to fish, right? So my camera opened that door for me. I learned to become an angler, really learned to become an angler because of that camera, right? So... Yeah, how that's, how picking up that camera has impacted my life is, is way more than you can ever explain, right? Or draw a linear connection to, right?
0: Right.
1: The,
2: The skills and the things that I have learned now and the things that I enjoy and the people that I know, all a result of having picked up that camera.
1: It just goes to show though, you know, I mean, You just never know where life's going to take you.
2: Totally. So
0: so this is
1: amazing. I mean, just from you going back down to the studio every day as a kid and just trying to find a way to clean the back closet, you know?
0: Yeah. And and look
1: at how, in a roundabout way, it's it's sat you here right now. Here we are at ICAST in Florida. I mean, And you're a prominent figure around here. You know every single person you walk by. You you no longer have to lie about working for... I do not have to lie my way (laughs) into (laughs) IFTD
2: anymore, yes. Boy, what a relief.
1: Where does... I mean, obviously, a lot of people listening to this are going to know you. For gink and gasoline, right? Sure. And um, let, is that what the next step was yeah, for you?
2: Yeah, totally. So, so at that point, I am totally focused on taking photos that I can sell either to manufacturers or to magazines, right? And so, um, through my friend Dan, who I told you about, mm-hmm. he um, he bought a piece of land on a beautiful little trout stream, and he and I were up there fishing just constantly and tearing it up. And the fellow that owned the land next to him was a guy named Brad Wayne still still one of my best friends who was a uh, Brad was the CEO of an online payroll company and guided on the weekends because he loved guiding people because he loved being a trail guide okay. right like yeah. didn't do didn't do it for the money just yeah. did because he loved doing it right and so I became friends with Brad and um so Brad had another house on a river called the Tacoa River Right, over there. And there was um, the Taylor River is a tailwater. It is a terrible story the way that river has been abused and destroyed by lack of um, regulation of development and by mismanagement of the TVA and by no absolutely no appreciation from the DNR, no regulation or no enforcement of what scant regulation we have. It's the kind of river where people go out and throw dog food and cast net trout. I'm not kidding. Oh,
1: I don't know anything about that.
2: Right, yeah. But there are... Thirty-inch wild brown trout
1: in that
2: uh, river. Oh, oh. <laughs> that persist, that make it somehow. That's
1: why they're on dog food,
2: right? Yeah. Well, yeah, right. And so um, there was a picture going around the internet at the time of a guy with a huge twenty-seven-inch male brown with a big pipe and a mouse hanging out of its mouth at night. And in the background of that photo, way off in the background, you can kind of see the lights of a house, right? And I was, I was so infatuated because I, I was just getting turned on to mouse fishing at the time and I wanted to catch a fish on a mouse so bad. I wanted to catch a fish like that so bad. I'd never caught a fish like that at that time. And so I, I brought that that picture up and I mentioned it to Brad, and he laughs. He goes, that's my buddy Kent. You know that's right out in front of my house. That's my house in the background. That fish was caught right out here, right? <sighs> so I immediately put my waders back say, on. as
1: you're putting your boots on. Right. Yeah. I
2: immediately put my waders back on and went out there and tied on a mouse pattern. And remember, on a six-weight bamboo rod, because at this point right. I'm fishing nothing but bamboo, right? Here. Yeah. And I caught a couple of fish, but nothing, even approaching that, right? And when I dragged myself back up to the house... There's this guy, Kent, who was in the picture sitting on the porch having a beer while I'm out poaching his honey hole that he's made famous on the Internet, right? So, like, that's a totally <laughs> awkward meeting, right? Yeah. And, and of course, his response was, did you get any? What did you – you know, what? Let me see your fly. Let me – you know, right? Yeah. Turned out to be just – the most generous guy, just, just, just great guy became one of my best friends. And, um, so I, Ken, Ken Cleawine and I were fishing, you know, all the time. He was, a, he was a guide. He had days off. I had days off during the week. We were going everywhere. We started, you know, started just tearing up Georgia and North Carolina. then we started driving out to Colorado and, you know, out to the West and going to Wyoming and just, you know, we'd be in the car and go and fish. What does your
1: um, wife think of all of this?
2: My wife is an angel, <laughs> you know, and, so it's good that you brought her up because I'll tell you what—that is the magic ingredient. That yeah. is—that is what's made all of it. That's possible, the common.
1: Right? I'm finding that is that that is oh. the commonality with a lot of my guests, especially a lot mm-hmm. of the ones who had to struggle in the beginning in their industry. Yeah, right. You know, they they have no problem saying my wife supported me in the beginning. Oh, totally. Not just financially, but emotionally, emotionally, emotionally. Yeah. You know, yeah. and okay, so she 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 looks like an angel.
2: She is an angel. So Kat, Kathy would would never ever want to come between me and something that I felt was important or that was going to, you know, fulfill me in some way. Like she is completely a hundred percent supportive. And we have the kind of relationship that neither of us would ever consider asking permission from the other to do something right. Like right. we'll, like we'll say, Hey, I'm thinking about this or something. Right. But it's never the honey. Can I, you know, it's, no. it's not that kind of relationship for either of us. Like she loves animals. That's her thing, you know, and, and she's dead set that she's going to go to Borneo and work in this orangutan rescue. And, I do not do primates. I do not.
1: I do not.
2: I do not go near primates.
1: Are we going to talk about that? Is we that can, a secret? You can
2: talk about that. Okay, we'll we, get there. In a minute, we'll, we'll do, get there. right, but I don't do primates. Go to Borneo, go do it, have have a blast. But yeah, I'm not I, going. I'm not going. I don't have any part of that, right? You know. So that's kind of how our relationship is. And yeah, yeah. she's been knows. I have said this publicly. I've written it on the site. If you enjoy and gasoline, thank my wife.
1: Oh, right. Well, because, thank you, Kathy. Because, I, I enjoy
2: gasoline. <laughs> right. She deserves the credit. And on that subject, I want you to think about this because we publish 365 days a year. I, know,
1: which, I can't wait to get into this. I want people to we're know how cool. Five
2: my wife proofreads everything. That she, goes does on that site. she does not. She does. She does. Oh my she does. goodness. All right. Right. She works a full-time job and she proofreads everything that goes in that site. That's a lot of work. Yeah. She is the best educated non-angler <laughs> in the planet. No she doubt. can talk fishing with anybody, right? But so anyway, um I've digressed. What was I talking so you about? Go oh, fishing so me with and, the guys, me and Kent everywhere. are fishing You're all in Colorado. around. Colorado. Right. right. <laughs> and and one of the things that was cool about fishing with Kent as a photographer is that Kent is wound up like a guitar string. Okay. Right. And that's he,
1: that's good. That works out good for you? Oh,
2: yo, totally. Because he has an an intensity about him that shows in the photos. You can see it, you know. He's he is every second he is on the water. He's anticipating a strike, right. right? And you can see it in his body language and, you know, he's super, super focused, right? So he was my number one model, right? So I'm selling photos of him everywhere, right? He's going on magazine covers and in ads and, you know, he's going everywhere, which works great for him, right? Because he's getting the publicity, which he needs. Being a guy in Georgia is not the easiest thing. No. We actually have an... So, you know, some good trout fishing there. Right. But it's, hmm. an, it's a pretty well kept secret. So Kent and I are going all over and fishing and stuff. And, and he has a website for his guide service and he has a blog. He's being pretty focused about it and writing on it and stuff. Right. And he's got a good following locally, you know, in the Southeast. And at the same time, I'm putting more and more fly fishing images on my website. And I know that I'm getting all these guys that are coming to the website to look at fishing pictures because I'm getting emails from them. And I'm just, you know, and I'm like, well, well, this doesn't make any sense, right? Like this, this, this website is being used by people who like, they're getting very little from it. A photographer's portfolio site is no place for a fly fisherman to go to. Right. And it's not like they're ever going to call me up and buy a photo to put in their magazine. Right. Or, (laughs) right. So Ken and I got talking about, well, what if we did something that better served that audience? Right. What if, what if we created something that had a larger reach than his regional fishing blog and, was of more value to anglers than my photography website so we decided to start a website
1: and this is five years ago
2: this is five years ago this was okay. this was i guess we made this decision we actually worked at it for a couple of years before it went live and we went live in 2011
1: okay and i remember right. this i remember you guys going live and back then it was moldy chum midcurrent yep. who else was the hot blog back then Daniki had a pretty good one.
2: Daniki had a good blog. And I know there were a couple of folks that I was reading at the time. Yeah. Right. There's a
1: couple of personal, like personal blogs. But I mean from a, from a, because your blog isn't necessarily, it's not like a personal I am Lewis Cahill. This is what I'm doing every day. It it was as far as like a, a more all encompassing Blog. There wasn't much. There, there was, was moldy was chum. There was mid current, especially ones that were cutting edge. And
2: and I don't know if Orvis news was really up and happening at that point.
1: I think they were. They may yeah. have been. But right. yeah, fair but enough. yeah. But it was we're, all we're, kind we're of happening. Feel for it. I mean, thought. moldy right. chum, chum was like the cutting edge thing.
2: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Unless
1: you wanted to go to the Drake form.
2: And and they were the ones. Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> <Moving forward. laughs> and they were the ones that springboarded me. So it's fair to say that, right? Like moldy yeah. chum, like Gink and Gasoline wouldn't have happened if not for moldy chum, right? Right. right. You know. So we started this website, and the first thing we was Well, you gotta find a URL. Right, right, And there's like nothing, like a friend of mine would say, yourmama.com is a, is, is a URL, right? Which it is, and I don't recommend you go into it. Yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but, but anyway, it was like really hard to find something that wasn't taken. You yeah, know? So is. every time we had an idea, we would go and somebody else already had it, right? And so we were, like I said, we were on the road all the time and playing music in the car. And we were into this band called Southern Culture on the Skids. Okay. You know, they're from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and they're kind of a rockabilly band. And they're, and they're awesome, right? And they've got a, a song called Fried Chicken and Gasoline. Okay. Right, And so it was kind of became, that was like our anthem Is that it's about being on the road and everything smells like fried chicken and gasoline, you know, like it's just about touring with a band, right? Yeah. So we were doing the same thing Said we were fishing. So it's just ginking gasoline. It was just like natural, uh, right?
1: Oh, I get it now. Okay. Right. I, I, yeah. I I'd never, I was like, I, all right, it's out right. there. I've got no idea where it came from, but it's cool.
2: Right. And what was funny was at the same time, unbeknownst to us, because we didn't know them at the time, Dave Grossman and Steve Seinberg were starting Southern Culture on the Fly, which oh, right. also How was ironic is that? from the same band. they were into the same band and it was like, oh, Southern Culture on the Fly, right? So it's <laughs> yeah, like there yeah, was this right. So so that's like this band that is so integrally a part of fly fishing and has no idea. They have no idea <laughs> that, they're, <laughs> that they're involved at all. But anyway. What was the mission yeah. of G and G well so I'll be honest with you, we weren't sure at first, right? Yeah, yeah. But but what we knew that we wanted to do was that there was this enthusiasm on the internet for fly fishing, right, within the fly fishing community. And and Kent and I both felt like, you know, fly fishing had a huge impact on our lives. Both of us felt like fly fishing saved our lives, yeah, right? Like it pulled me out of a really dark time in my life when my career was collapsing, you know, and it had pulled him through a lot of stuff, you know, personally. And we just wanted to share that, right? We just wanted to share that love of it and, you know, just try to promote it, right? Part of Part of my thing is like, it it burns me how elitist fly fishing can be, or at least was at some point, right? Like I think yeah. it's, so.
1: No, it still can be, but I think
2: less now than it has been.
1: Oh, for sure. Know, oh, we've come leaps a long and time, bounds, right. leaps yeah. and bounds.
2: But at that time, no, it was very much that way. And I remember so. My local fly shop, who who I love, and they're awesome dudes. But I I walked in that door. You know, for 15 years, before anybody knew what my name was, right? right, or took time to talk to me, nobody would tell you how to do anything or tell you where to fish or you know any of that stuff, right? And so it was really hard. It was really hard in that time learning, you know. And like I said, through the generosity of my friends who taught me, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to share that, right? Yeah, you give them back, right? So I saw myself. I've never looked at myself as, oh, I'm this fishing authority who knows everything <laughs> about fishing. Is gonna, I saw myself as a guy who, through my circumstances, was fortunate enough to know the people who had that information and could disseminate it. So I was sort of a fountainhead of sharing the knowledge of much more educated people around me, right? It's not like, Hey, I'm this great angler that no, 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 no. It's like, Hey, Look how cool this is. This is, you know, how I learned this and, you know, right? And, and just sharing that and, and on the idea that, you know, that a rising tide floats all boats, right? That the, that the more people there are out catching a fish on a fly, the better off we are as anglers, the better off the, the industry is, right? And so at some point, I'd, like the words just came out of my mouth and this became kind of the mission statement was that our idea was to make fly fishing inclusive, not exclusive. Right. Right. Because it was always an exclusive sport. And just, you know, people don't think about that word. If you talk about an exclusive community, yeah, right?
1: Break it down. What you're that
2: excluding mean? someone, right? Yeah. Who, who are you excluding? Right. And so my idea was that's not how we need to be thinking about this. We need to be looking at who we can include, right? right? Who can we be getting into fly fishing? Because A, everyone deserves to know the joy of catching a fish on a fly, Right. And B, the more people there are doing it, the better off we all are. And a lot of people don't understand. They're like, well, I don't want a bunch of people on my water, particularly steelheaders. You know how that is. Yeah, I'm going through it right, right
1: now. I live on the water. I don't want them there. But, but at the end of the day, when the bulk has its issues, we've got a huge community of people who are there ready to fight for it. Exactly. So it's my job just to think outside the box and take my days and, you know, go exploring elsewhere right? rather than begrudge them because I need those people.
2: Exactly. So we need to
1: We need to remember that that's important.
2: Yeah, and, and not just the conservation is a huge reason for that, but also You know, because of the talented people who are guides or industry professionals who need to make a living in this sport to carry the sport forward, to develop the techniques and the materials and the equipment that we use and enjoy. And guys complain about how expensive fly rods are. And it's like, well, you know, they're they're that expensive because it's such a small market. So the more people that are buying them, the more affordable they're going to be, right? So in every way, whether it's conservation, whether it's, you know, industry development, you know, the proliferation of guides, techniques, fly. The more people there are fishing, the better off we are as a community, and the more open we are, the better off we are as a community. So that's what Gink and Gasoline was about. The right? response was
1: it must. I mean, how was the response when you guys launched? Oh
2: wow! So we were kind of ignorant. We were like Babes in the Woods, right? Okay. So we didn't know how to work Google Analytics when we first. I've got
1: never it. heard Babes in the Woods in my life. Is that like a backcountry thing? <laughs> What is a babe? What is a babe in the wood? It's an innocent. I've fished with lots innocent. of babes that's, that's, in the woods. And yes, are, you have. Yes, you have. Yes. So not innocent. Yes.
2: No. No. That's <laughs> that's different. That's a different thing. No. It's a. It's an. Maybe that's, that's a southern <laughs> expression. expression. Cool. All right. Yeah, Learn right. something new every day. So it means that we're you were an innocent. You know, we okay. we didn't know what we were getting into. Got right it. So we didn't when we first started our site. We didn't know how many people were coming to the site. I built the original website myself. Right. You I did. Knew, yeah. I knew nothing about it. I was like never. I'd never written a lot of HTML. or anything. I was just like, okay, let's see how this works. I'll watch some YouTube videos. <laughs> right, right. And I built, if anybody remembers that original site, it actually looked pretty good. No, it looked pretty good because I chose a WordPress theme that was very heavy on photography and I had lots of photography, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. so that was the trick. And so we put that together and we printed up some business cards and we went to IFTD. We launched July 4th. Um, 2011, right? Now IFTD was in August. So we were online a month before IFTD and we went and started handing out cards and telling, you know, people about it. And by that time, you know, I knew a whole lot of people in the industry, you know, just had been friends were working with them on photography or whatever, or just hanging out. Right. And so, what I didn't realize was we were handing out the URL to to all of the influencers in the industry.
1: Uh Yeah, it's right. a re, it's a retail. Well, it's a an industry show.
2: Right. Exactly. You know, but we hadn't. You know, it, it wasn't like a calculated plan. It was just like, hey, check out my new website.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you about a card? Yeah. Car? Here, let's do an exchange.
2: Right. So, so we got home and we like. We paid somebody to put that Google Analytics code in the site because we had no idea how to do it. So we, you know, we like paid a guy $100 to do it or something. And so the first time our Google Analytics came online, we had 25,000 readers a month.
1: That's awesome. And we
2: thought nobody was reading. Oh yeah? We, thought, we, we didn't. Yeah, we thought, we thought. So I had gone to a seminar. I had go, with a gal who's now a good friend of mine named Hollis Gillespie. She's an author and she does a seminar on blogging, right? She's a humorous and awesome writer. And um, so I did a seminar with Hollis and one of the first things she said was if you want to be successful as a blog, you have to publish every day for at least the first 30
1: days. Oh, wow. Right. That's interesting. Okay.
2: Right. Because that's what, how the search engines find you and all that stuff. Right. And so we said, okay, well, then this is just how Kenton, I think, right? Well, if, if 30 days is good, 60 days is better. And if 60 days is better, 90 days is great. Right. So, <laughs> right? so that was our plan. It's just
1: so much work.
2: It is. It's a lot of work. And we, and we prepared, we did our stuff upfront, and we would alternate. We would do every other day. So it was about that 90 days when we got our Google analytics and we also got a newsletter, right? We look at the Google Analytics so we got 25,000 people, you know, reading. It. And I think the first person I remember seeing sign up for the newsletter was Simon Gosworth.
1: For real. Yeah. <laughs>
2: You're right. I love Simon. I've known Simon for years and I'm sure Simon just signed up for my newsletter because he was my friend. <laughs> you know, but I was, I was like the first person, seriously the first person reading my newsletter is Simon Gosworth. Yes. So I'm like. <laughs> okay, so this better be good, right? Right. right? So we were terrified, frankly.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> we were like... Oh shit! What have we done?
0: Right, <laughs>
2: right. So we just started writing with a fervor, right? Mm. And and I realized that at this point I was like, I gotta, I've gotta get better at what I'm doing. So I went to night school. I literally went and enrolled in a writing program, night school at Emory University. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's shocking, isn't it? And right. then you look back at your old writing and you're just embarrassed, right? Yeah, <laughs> I
2: know, Good right? Lord.
1: Studying writing has been one of the best. Anyway, yeah, we're on the same page here, my friend. All.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. Really,
1: yeah, studying writing. writing. Writing is one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Not only with my writing, but my speech.
2: Totally, right? Right. It's the education thing, you know? You gotta get education. You gotta, you gotta get educated, you know? to so won't get a real job. And so, anyway. I, I um, love
1: the dyslexic guy. He's like, we gotta get educated. Yeah, right,
2: exactly, right? And the southerner, right? Like, that's the, that's one of the funny things. Some of my contributors are southern. It's like, I think half of my job is translating southern English, right, to something people can like read. Like babes in the woods. Exactly, like babes in the woods.
1: So at this point, you're no longer babes though, because you guys have fig- you're starting to figure this out.
2: Well. I don't know if we're figuring it out, but we are peddling like crazy, right? right. Like we're like we are just working like madmen at it.
1: But you're not making money at this point. No, you're, we're not making a you're dime. A class on it.
2: We don't even have a way you're to make money. We don't have an ad space to sell. We don't have anything. Right? Was that the
1: thought though? Were you hoping to make it to, or get to the point where you could offer advertising? It,
2: it became evident very quickly that it was going to have to start paying for itself. Okay, right? It very quickly turned into a full time job. Right, so it's like okay. So we went through. My wife is a designer, and so she designed Ganking Gasoline 2.0. All yeah. right, which was the which was the it, very similar. We're kind of on the third design right now, but it's very similar to what you see now, and it incorporated our advertising space. Right, and I will I will never forget I mean, the first person to buy advertising from me was Tim Ray Jeff. Cool for airflow. My, my very first advertising and one of my favorite people in the world. I remember. Kent and I high fiving and I and me saying to him, and that's how we had Fight Club seven days a week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: Because right. we've always said that the business model for G and G was Fight Club. Oh yeah. You know, like when new contributors come on, always tell them you decide the level of your involvement. Like that's the right right. Yeah. The only the only thing is different is that you have to talk about G and G you can't. <laughs> right. But so anyway, um yeah, that's how that evolved, right? Once we committed in earnest to publishing three hundred and sixty five days a year, and we have five years we've never miss a day or there's been something new on G and G every day for five years.
1: Serious props to you. That is really hard work. I do
2: not know how it happens to be honest with you. It's like, it's like, it just kind like, of all works out. It's, it's like putting on a play. So I was in, I was in theater when I was in school. My sister was a director, and so I was. When I was a little kid, she would carry me up to the college, and I would be in the college place because they always needed a kid, right? And so there's this thing when you're doing when you're doing theater that it's like at the dress rehearsal, you can't imagine how it's ever going to happen. It's like everything's a disaster right up until the last minute, and there's no way it's going to work. And then it all somehow kind of magically comes together when the curtain comes up, right? Totally, yeah. And that's exactly how it has happened with getting gasoline from day one. So yeah, the the traffic just kept going and going, and we're right now. I mean. I'm, it boggles my mind when I say this, we see about two and a half million readers a year. <laughs> I know, right? Like, I think the largest we had, one day we had 88,000 readers in one day.
1: Holy! And um, I can attest to that because you posted my podcast once, yep, and my podcast. numbers thank you. I pr- I totally appreciate it. And I was I'm like you. I thought when I started this thing, I'd have like a couple of people listen. I never realized
2: your mom. Yeah,
1: And actually, that is what I I really did. Mm-hmm. I would be like, hey, mom, dad, would you guys like let me know what you think? And yep. but when you posted it, I watched the numbers spike. <laughs> so awesome. I know this is not lip service. I know that what you're telling me right now is absolutely
2: true. Well, and I say it with. Every, every degree of humility in the world because I, I'll, I'll tell you one of my, the fundamental things I work for my readers. I tell my advertisers that I work for my readers and I tell people that when we review their products and stuff like you know if I love your product, I will write a review on it if I don't, I will not because I'm not going to spew a bunch of negativity about something because I yeah. think there's plenty of that in fly fishing right but my first last and always commitment is to my readers because without them. None of this happens, right? None of this happens. I don't. I don't get to go to the fabulous places to fish, and I don't get the gear to do it with. And I owe all that to the people that read the site. And we have such a great community. That's the one thing that I love about it. And not to this, the guys at the Drake, because I love Tom and Jeff, and that it's an awesome magazine. But that forum is such a disaster, and it's not their fault. Every online forum is a disaster. That's the nature of the forum. Um, people have pushed me to have a forum on G and G. No, don't. No, don't do it. No,
1: don't do it. I, I wouldn't do it
2: because I'm. I'm all about. It's got to stay positive.
1: Coming up, Lewis finally tells me about his primate experience, and for the first time on this show, I wonder if maybe I shouldn't have asked. Okay, so that's a lie. It's incredible. What's your most controversial subject?
2: Oh, hands down, I wrote this piece about, oh no, you're going to love this because I wrote it on the Dean River about not beaching steelhead, about how you know one of the main, my opinion, one of the things that really is bad for steelhead is guys that drag them up on the beach, they give themselves head trauma, they flop around, they hit their head on the yeah, rock. Yeah, if you
1: beach a steelhead on the Dean, you're getting my boot through your teeth. Yeah,
2: thank you very much, I'm right? I'm so yeah. it is
1: really damaging because yeah. we're up there every day for three months when those fish are there. We see the mold, we see the lost scales, we see see the slime where it was gone. I mean, it takes a few days for these things to kick in. You cannot be dragging fish through sand. I mean, that's from sockeye days. You know, you want to bonk a fish and harvest it. You can drag it all the way home if you want. Right. But not when it comes Let's, to delicate but not fish. A and the no. thing that a lot of people don't realize too, and this is important, just if you don't mind me kind of taking over
2: here, testify, sister.
1: I'm on it. Amen, brother. <laughs> no, the thing about it is, is that when a when a when an anadromous fish enters the fresh water, they're at, they're very very sensitive in that stage when when they're fresh from the salt. That's why if you take your fingernail, you could even almost stick it underneath their scale.
0: Oh wow! Their,
1: their scales are still. I mean, you can still get scales on you, mm-hmm. which is of course really bad for those fish. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The further upstream they go, and the and the further along they get in their maturation process, mm-hmm. they' they start to go red. They get kind of slimy, mm-hmm. right? Their scales no longer stick out like that, and that's made so other bucks. And this is just in speaking with biologists. Yeah, it's made so that other buck steelhead can, you know, take chomps out of them, or so that they can mm-hmm. hide their bodies into logs or log jams to hide, or yeah. you know, rub up against rocks. That makes perfect sense. The further upstream they are, when you're on the Dean River it's literally pouring into the salt water. Oh yeah. There's oh, not yeah. a more delicate stage in this in this fish's life. So good so, for you for bringing attention to that.
2: Yeah, well, it's something that I'm super passionate about because steelhead just captured me, right? Like when I first started catching steelhead and I I I, I learned to fish for Great Lakes steelhead and I say that in quotations, not to anger anybody because people get pissed off about it, right? But it's there's all good, yeah. there's a great fishery in the Great Lakes area, you know, for those lake run steelhead and they're mm. awesome and amazing fish. And that's where I learned to catch them, right? But then when I, when I went out on the West coast and I started catching, you know, wild Pacific steelhead, I was like, Oh my God, this is my, this is for me. Right. Uh. <laughs> right. Like that really got my heart, you know, and I am. Really attracted by that kind of romantic idea that here I am living in Georgia and I'm drawn to this river on the other side of the continent at the same time that these fish are drawn from the ocean to this river, and we meet in this one point in time, and their in their journey east, and my journey west, right, and the two of us meet yeah. right there. Like that idea to me is irresistible.
1: It's a romantic. It's right? such a love affair.
2: I love those fish, and they are so endangered and so fragile, and in such bad shape right now, just globally. You know, and I was I was just fishing in the UK, and I, I fished in Scotland, and you know they have no public water over there, so you right. have to buy ticket from a club that leases a beat, you know, and the club that I leased, um, that I bought my ticket through had just leased two beats on the most productive salmon river on the Island. And they were pumped about it, right? They were stoked and they were bragging on their website that that river produced five fish last year. Five fish were caught on the river all year last year. And they're stoked about it. Right? And, and so that's where Atlantic salmon are right now. And that's where steelhead are headed if we are not very careful, right? I know that's like, that's like a kick in the (laughs) gut to any of us. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's
1: always a a tough one for me because my integrity says to me often don't fish for them. Right. Something like, you know, the Thompson, I've just had to stop, but, Mm -hmm. but to stay relevant. This, this is where I... If you listen to the show, you'll always mm-hmm. hear me be like, so do you need to catch 10 fish a day? Maybe yeah, right. we should be happy you know, limiting our numbers. So I understand anyone who's listening to this are like, are you insane if there's that few fish? Why are you fishing for them? I get it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I hear yeah. you. We're on the same page in a lot of ways. It's just everything in my life is about compromise. And I think we just yeah, have to right. compromise when it comes to this situation.
2: Well, there's, there certainly is a dichotomy there, right? But so my point is not that we should stop fishing, but that we should be responsible anglers. Totally. Right? Like we... We have to be stewards of this resource or there's gonna be no resource for us. How did you to enjoy. get
1: backlash on that on that? Subject? I got hate
2: mail, I got death threats, I got you can't imagine there's this guy in um Smithers or someplace that I get emails from. That I mean, he'll like if I ever step foot in the town, he wants to kick my ass. I got all this hate mail from it because people. I guess they're just they're just attracted, they're just attached to this idea that they can do whatever the hell they want and they shouldn't be questioned. And I don't know, I I, I can't tell you. And for for some reason, it seems to be I get more backlash from the Steelhead community than anywhere yeah, it's else. It's a tough the community.
1: They're, they're is, tough, yeah. yeah, and and they're even t- they're tougher in your own backyard. Yeah, I bet. You I know, bet it's, it's a yeah. tough crew to get in, get in with for sure.
2: But anyway, I, my point is, I don't, I don't care. They can think what they want to think about it. i <laughs> I'm probably taking didn't care the moral but that's high ground on I wouldn't on have this. thought that
1: that was your number one backlash. So that's oh, yeah. interesting to hear. If it makes yeah. you feel better, when I wrote my first article some years ago, um, that I was no longer going to be gripping, grinning steelhead, right? I remember that specifically as a species. I also got hate mail, yeah, a lot I bet. of backlash. But um, I'm very proud to say that now, a lot of those same people have actually reached back out to me and said, "Okay, I was offended because you forced me to look at myself." Right. And it wasn't an article about, I, I very much pointed at myself in that article. Yeah. And explained why I was making that decision for myself.
2: I think you hit um, it on the head there. Well, thank you. Yeah, yes. Yeah,
1: yeah. And they've mm-hmm. since taken the time to try something different and, and they've reached out to me and said, look, I'm sorry. And I also now I've taken the same path and I get it. So, right. you know, it, it comes full circle.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. That's, all right. That's interesting. So I'll tell you this one story about, um, fishing on the Upper Dean one day and I was out there by myself and I watched one of the guys from the, um the totems fish yeah. fish through this run with a dry fly and I kind of sat on the bank and waited for him to finish and goes away and I was like, okay, well I'm going to swing something deep through there, right? And sure. I came through that run and on my, and I'm up in the head of the run and I'm really in that sniddly little water where you don't really get a good swing and I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should just blow this off and move down and my third swing, the fly just stops like it's on a rock. And then starts to slowly move upstream. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know that fish, right? And, uh, so I battled this fish down through this run and finally got it up there. And it was, it was a 42 inch buck. Oh my goodness. Which you know on the Dean what kind of a fish that is, right? I do. They don't get
1: landed very often because they just whoop you.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. And so this is a moment when obviously when I get this fish up there where I can see it, I'm, I'm pretty nervous. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm in, um, you know, I'm in almost waist deep water, right? But there's no way I'm taking this fish to the beach. There is right. no way I'm taking a 42 inch buck on the Dean to the beach, yeah. right? And so it took me, oh, I think five tries to tail this fish. I literally, its tail was like a Chinook. I couldn't get my hand around it, you know, and finally I got it, right? And then I'm, there I am by myself. I got have a picture of this fish, right? You can't not yeah. have a picture of this fish, right? But there's no way I can get it. Like, what am I gonna do, right? So I ended up taking this photo where I just tailed the fish with its head out you know, in front of me and I held the camera back at my chest and got a shot where you just see that fish's massive tail. Yeah. You know, and, because and
1: you're not a small man. You have yeah. big hands.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. And I and I spread my fingers as far apart as I could and the tail was two inches wider than my hand on both sides.
1: Oh my I'm looking at your hand right now. That's insane. Yeah,
2: right. It was like a Chinook tail and you can see the muscles in it. And it's one of my favorite pictures I've ever taken of a seal head and all you see is that tail. You know, and it's kind of like the uh, the old horror movie where you didn't see the monster. You know, you just yes. saw the shadow, or you just saw the hand or whatever, but you just see that tail and that tells the story. Right. And that's the only photo I needed of that fish.
1: Yeah. I have a question for you then yep. not to go too deep with it, but yeah. do you feel any responsibility as somebody who, I mean, really you're managing a lot of of the image of fly fishing right now as a photographer and
2: well, I didn't until you said that. Well,
0: get <laughs>
1: ready. Feel the weight come down. Do you feel weight on your shoulders or any sort of pressure to make sure that you're trying to put out an image in, as far as fish handling goes? And like, what's your take on this whole oh, keep yeah. the fish's head submerged in the water?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm very happy to talk about that because that's something I, I don't feel a weight at all. Yeah, I feel a responsibility to promote best practices,
1: Mm -hmm. right?
2: Like I feel a responsibility to be an advocate for the fish. I feel a responsibility to be an advocate for the resource. And so it is a big movement right now and there's a, it's an interesting thing in my, in my opinion. So especially where steelhead are concerned, let's, let's face it, all fish are not created equal.
1: No, they're not. Anybody who's
2: ever caught a permit can tell you that a permit is damn near bulletproof. Like, you can photograph a permit for, you know, half the afternoon and it's going to be fine. But on the other hand, a steelhead, like we're talking about, Mm -hmm. is a much more fragile fish, right? And more than being, you know, on the individual level of fragile fish, as a species, they're fragile fish, right? As a species, they are in danger, right? So we have a much higher obligation to those fish, right? So the way you handle... A steelhead versus the way you handle a brown trout versus the way you handle a bonefish, right, is, or a redfish, it, it's, it's different, right? It's it, Because the fish are different, A, on an individual level, right, on a biological level, and because the species is different in, in how endangered they are in the environment, right? So there's no cookie-cutter mold, right? So personally, um, when I handle steelhead, I keep it on the water. Right. Always. Right. Just always. That's it. And when I'm photographing them with people, I have them keep them in the water. Right. That's, that is the way to do it as far as I'm concerned. Right. Now that does not mean that you can't take a fish out of the water without hurting it. Right. So the, the danger, as you know, I do a lot of, um, talks at fly shops and TU, you know, meetings and stuff like that. And I always try to take a t-shirt or something that I can give away as a prize. And I ask this question, I say we're going to have a, have a quiz. The first person that gets the right answer gets the t-shirt. How long can a fish hold its breath? You know, and the first, someone will always say 10 seconds because somewhere somebody promoted the idea that that was the amount of time you keep a fish out of the water. 10 seconds, 30 seconds, you know, right? And the the proper answer is, of course, fish cannot hold their breath because fish don't have lungs.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Right? Small detail. Right. Fish
2: Fish have gills. They have no breath to hold. So there are two dangers. One is that when you, as soon as you take the fish out of the water, it's in oxygen deprivation. It's getting no oxygen, right? So that's not like you holding your breath. That's like you having your breath completely knocked out of you and not having any oxygen. In you, yeah. Right. So that's a different state. Right. The second thing is that the, the vela in those gills which are really super fine. If those vela are allowed to dry, not even completely, but but enough that the water separating them is is evaporated, they'll stick together right and when they stick together they can't do their job anymore and the fish then will die because it's not able to get oxygen it's not able to breathe once it's put back in the water so that's the biggest danger right you can't you can't do that to a fish and of course you can't handle it in a way that damages its gills because that's super important you can't handle it in a way that removes slime from it you know you can't touch it with dry hands because that you know opens it up to bio, you know bacterial infections and all kinds of stuff so there's lots of stuff that you you cannot do with a fish without hurting it. Um you don't want to lift it in a way that it's internal organs are squashed or anything like that. And it's funny that you asked me this because just last week I did a video shoot where we did an instructional video on how to hold a fish for photo. Oh,
1: you did? I'll have yeah. to check it out.
2: Okay. Um well it's not up yet. It's oh. still, it's still being edited. It'll, it'll be up within the next, you know, month or two. And so we've got a little brown trout. And again, this is not the way I would recommend photographing a steelhead, right? This is a, this is a brown trout in a tailwater. And I always will, I'll net the fish. And I'll let the fish rest in the net for a few minutes, let it get, let it get calmed down, let it disperse some of its lactic acid, let it recover a little bit from the fight, chill out with its head into the current and just hold there naturally right until it's a little more able. Right. And then, so here's the thing. Photography has been villainized. Lately for, for killing fish, right? And I- I,
1: I, Yeah, and I'll be honest, I have, I look at photography differently these days. It's getting harder Mm -hmm. to not.
2: Right. And fish are definitely harmed in the process of being photographed from time to time. However, my assertion would be that more fish, if not, as many, if not more fish, are harmed in the process of being unhooked and released as are in the process of having their photo taken. So I'm not really as interested in talking about whether or not we're photographing fish as on the whole, how we're handling fish during the whole process, right? Because you know, fish are being harmed without being photographed. It's, it's not photography that's the issue; it's fish handling in general. And I don't look at it as, as a question of oh, we need to te- we need to stop people from taking pictures of the fish. No, we need to teach people how to handle fish in general.
1: Because the photographer is just capturing what's happening,
2: right? Exactly. It's not like
1: he's handling the fish,
2: right? Or, or you know, or, or even if you are, you know, it's a matter of how you're handling them, right? Exactly. So, yeah. So the first thing that goes wrong is panic and, and the problem is it's, it's absolutely nothing wrong with not being a super experienced angler nothing wrong with that but one of the things that's really challenging for anglers who aren't very experienced they haven't caught a whole lot of fish they don't want to handle fish and so they react they use their monkey brain Right, right, because yeah, we're yeah. monkeys, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, and and they grab the fish and they squeeze it, and the harder the fish fights, the harder they squeeze, and of course, the harder they squeeze, the harder the fish fights because it's panic. Fish don't have hands; they don't understand hands. Right. They're, they're freaking out. They think you're eating them. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the so the first thing I show people in this video after you let the fish rest in the net is you slip your hand under the fish, and what I always do is I put my index finger and middle finger under the fish's skull. Right. So, the so I'm supporting the fish by those two fingers with bone. I am not gripping that fish. It's just resting on that hand, right? Then, I reach around with my other hand, reaching from behind, so your hand's not in front of the fish in the picture. I take them by the donk, right right at the base of the tail, right? Yeah. And you can put a good grip on a fish there without hurting it, without freaking it out, right? I'll hold it very, very gently, and I'll just lift the fish for a couple seconds and duck him right back in. And everything goes okay, right? And as long as it's just up there for a few seconds of water still running out of its gills, and if you have anybody that knows anything about how to use their camera, they're going to get a frame or two, and then you release the fish, and it's done, and everybody's happy, right? So I'm less worried about fish in that situation than I am the guy who catches a fish, and he hasn't crushed the barb on his hook, and he doesn't know what the hell he's doing, and he's squeezing the fish like a cannoli to try to get the hook out of its mouth, and that fish is going to die. Whether it gets a picture taken up, of it or not, right? Yeah. So, so that's the message for me: is let's crush our barbs. Let's use catch and release tools. Uh, the the rising crocodile tool. That's I swear by. It, it's the best way to take a fish out of a hook.
1: Is that the thing that pops it out? Yeah, like it's, it it's got a, it's out?
2: got a little ring and it locks around yeah, the leader yeah, it's and amazing. just right into the bend of the hook and dink and it's out. Yeah, a barbless hook and you use that almost doesn't matter where the fish gets the fly, right? And then let's handle the fish in a gentle and responsible manner, you know, so that nobody gets hurt. And whether we take a picture of it or not, that fish is going to be okay, right? And don't be parading around with them out of the water for thirty. 30 seconds and don't be lifting them by the gills and squeezing their bellies and, and all this stuff or grabbing them with dry hands. You know, and the other thing that is just unfortunate, you know, but guys, especially when you know they're fishing nymphs and stuff and they, you know, may not be experienced enough to be really quick on their hook set and let fish swallow hooks or get them in the yeah. tongue or stuff like that. Like that's right. So to me, all of that is a much bigger topic than should we be photographing fish?
1: That's an excellent yeah. point.
2: Right. Yeah. You know, so, So I don't, I don't think it, it does any harm to, you know, for me, there's value in photographs of fish, not just because, well, I make my living off photographs of fish, obviously, right? But there's value in it because that's what inspires people to go out and fish. Right. That's, that's what gets that's, people into the sports. I yeah, want to yeah, catch yeah. that fish. Right. I remember, you know, early, early on, my, my wife bought me my first day of guided fishing ever as a Christmas present. And she made a card of this picture of this guy holding a big fish and she cut the face out and in the face it said, this could be you. <laughs> right. And so that was that's the whole thing. Right. That's what motivates people to get out there. So I don't I don't want to villainize that. I don't want to take that away from people. Right? I just want to do it in a responsible way that doesn't hurt fish.
1: That's an excellent answer. Yeah. I will not argue that. Not even one bit of it. Right on. Now we can't keep avoiding this monkey story, and yeah, I would right. I wouldn't let you tell me about it downstairs because I wanted to hear about it now. And I don't okay. know. I don't know if it's funny, devastating. I don't think it's funny. It's actually, okay if you
2: laugh. Parts of it are parts of it are kind of darkly funny. I think. I think we use humor to diffuse uncomfortable situations, and it isn't uncomfortable. Could
1: be. Oh dear, I don't know what I've got myself into. Um, it's but fine.
2: It's, d- let's just jump into it. Jump. So, so my wife has been for years very involved with animals and she's, she's a big animal lover and, um, she's a designer, but for years when she was self-employed, she volunteered at the zoo in Atlanta and worked as a lion, tiger, and elephant trainer so cool. Right. So I, I can promise you that there is nothing hotter than seeing your wife tell a 700-pound tiger to sit and it's sitting. That's pretty awesome, right? So bad. <laughs> right? It's, it's pretty awesome. And, and she really has a gift where that's yeah. concerned. She got into that community, and animal people all knew each other, whether there's zoos or circuses or whatnot. And so we made a very good friend who um, trains elephants for the circus. Okay. And it's interesting how that works. Most circuses lease their elephants. So he had three elephants and he traveled in a semi truck with these elephants all over and works with different circuses and stuff. Right. So we did some photos of him and his elephants and my wife with his ele- elephants and we were just hanging out. We were, we were just friends. Whenever he'd come to town with a circus, we'd go hang out with him. And so he had some friends that were chimp trainers. So let me pause for this moment to say that, Chimps should never be kept in captivity. No. Right? Chimps are highly intelligent animals. They are extremely close to us. Something like 96% of our DNA is, you know, we share in common. They should not be kept in captivity. That is cruel and inhumane, it is also extremely dangerous, right? Yeah. So I am not a PETA member. I am not going to give you an animal rights sermon. I frankly hate chimpanzees, right? <laughs> yeah. And I will do a little dance the day they go extinct. <laughs> However, they should not be kept in captivity. They are mean animals. They sneak into houses and steal babies and eat them where they're in the wild. You're serious I'm enough? dead serious, yes. And oh, so God. if you talk to primate no. trainers about this, they will tell you that they they call this what they do what they call the screwdriver test, right? And they say, they put it this way: they say if you give a gorilla a screwdriver, it will ignore it. If you give an orangutan a screwdriver, it'll take the cage apart. If you give a chimp a screwdriver, it'll kill the chimp next to it.
1: Okay, so this is not and
2: this is not all
1: monkeys. I mean, you're talking. Chimpanzees. I'm talking about apes actually.
2: I'm talking about the great apes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, I call them monkeys just, you know, slang, but no, they're apes. So our buddy who's the elephant trainer has friends that are chimp trainers, okay. right? In the circus. They have one of the last remaining chimp acts in the circus. And I made a photo book for our friend of he and his elephants and they saw it and wanted to know this guy photograph us and our chimps. So I said yes. And they had, because I was stupid. And they had, and they had this adorable little, um, three year old chimp named Ricky, okay. who was wonderful. And chimps are really sweet until they reach puberty, until, until they get their hormones cutting. When they're little babies, they are adorable. So anyway, we photographed little Ricky and the, the cool thing about this is this little three year old chimp. It's late at night. It's after the circus. We've set up lights in the center ring, you know, and I'm photographing this little chimp in his trainer's lap and he's so over it and bored and tired and he hops down. Down and he runs across and he jumps in my lap. Aw. Right? And it's, oh, he's adorable. He's like the size of a toddler, right? And, yeah. And uh, he wants my camera. And so I just gave it to him, right? And the trainer's like, I don't know if that's a good idea, (laughs) right? I've got more. What the hell, right? Right? So I let him take the camera. And he's been watching me, how I hold it. You know, And you put your hand under the camera to support it, right? But his little hands are too small. So he reaches his foot up, and he puts his foot under it, and he grabs it on both sides. And he points it at his trainer, and he starts taking pictures. And I have a series of portraits where you see the trainer. First of all, he's like, what's going on? He's looking kind of skeptical. And then he starts to smile, and then he's busted out laughing. This whole, this triptych of perfect portraits that the three-year-old chimp shot of his trainer. It was, it was amazing, right? Wow. yeah. And, and all that was great and fine and well, and we shot some other chimps until later they brought out these two that I later found out that they call the psycho killers.
1: Why would they bring them out?
2: Liquor was involved.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, right it's very light and everyone including some of the chimps have had some liquor <laughs> you're, you're not serious i am serious
1: okay um so just as much never mind i'm gonna stop i'm not gonna <laughs> that that <laughs> yeah. continue right
2: chimps should not be kept in the wild they should not I'm get captivity they should not be given liquor now we have two rules so what Was did you idiots do what did you guys do so i'm photographing these chimps and these chimps the trainer has told me they're two trainers it's a man and woman They have told me these chimps are dangerous, have to stay between you and these chimps at all times. Okay. Right. So the woman is between me and the chimps and I'm kind of shooting over her shoulder and the man has ropes around their necks and is behind them holding them. Right. And this may sound cruel to you at this point, but later on you'll, you'll come to see the wisdom of it. These chimps have had all of their teeth pulled. They have most people know that most chimps in captivity have no teeth.
1: My stomach's like, Actually, physically, really upset right now.
2: Yeah, I just but wait. I'm going to keep listening. I'm going to keep listening. So I'm photographing these chimps, and I actually have the last eight photos that I took of them, and you can see them hatch a plan. And I'm not lying to you, I'll show you these photos, you won't believe uh, you it. You
1: haven't ever. lied to me yet, so I'm right. just listening.
2: This one chimp looks at me and gives me a look that will make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Yeah. And then it turns and starts to whisper in the other chimp's ear.
1: You're kidding. Mm-mm.
2: And the other chimp starts laughing. No. Right? Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull the photos up. So I'm as I describe this, I'm gonna let you Look, look at these pictures. So you can scroll, so this is one and oh. then that's two, right? You can go that way, right. Oh,
1: but they look so sad. They really do they have ropes around no, their they necks.
2: They do no, they're not happy. They're not happy. right.
1: That actually in photo number one, he looks like he's gonna uh, he looks not he looks like he wants to hurt you.
2: right. And then look at number two.
1: Photo number two, they actually look like they're having a moment of contemplation. Oh my god. Right. And there. Photo number three, they are starting to look at each other and the one of them's kind of smiling and the other one's like, dude, here's right. what's up. <gasps> Photo number four, he's whispering in his ear and the I other one is leaning that. in. Yep. And he's got that contemplative look on his face and he's like, yeah, he smi- he's smiling.
2: Now I come down to and here. Five. This one starts laughing. Okay, he's laughing.
1: laughing. Right. And the other one is pulling his head even closer into his ear while the other one's laughing. And
2: this is the total, we're gonna get you. Why right. is there
1: a woman suddenly between the two of them now in the next photo?
2: Okay, so the chimp that's doing the whispering at this point starts to pitch a fit. And act up and cry and fuss and okay. lures the trainer over. Okay. And the trainer is giving them peppermints as treats and trying Making to settle them. Like and a sympathetic down. face, I see. Right. And the chimp keeps on fussing the next one. and making a fuss. So now right? she's
1: hugging him because he's crying like a baby, and right. the other one's disinterested. The he's other turning one, away. No,
2: the other one is looking at the other trainer who's holding the rope to be sure distracted. he's not paying attention, <gasps> right? Uh-huh. This chimp continues to make a fuss, Turns her out from between the two of us. Oh. This chimp looks to make sure she's not paying attention and leaps 10 feet and lands on my shoulders. Holy shit. And they're both on me within a second.
1: They So they they hatched a plan. I can't. If, if I didn't see these photos, I would never in a million years have believed this. Right. They hatched a plan. And they th- made a fit. One thought it was funny. The other one made the fit to get her the over. distraction. Totally created the distraction. He's looking both ways, making sure. Mm-hmm. Louis, this is Unbelievable. And
2: and from that point, they quite literally almost killed me,
1: so what did they do and I
2: and I show, I've showed you I have scars
1: your arms all right. scarred up yeah, yeah from that so what that, happened that chimp, on you
2: well they they both start they both grabbed me, and you don't think about it until you have a couple of chimps on you they're they're literally seven times stronger than a human, yeah, yeah yeah, and they have four hands,
1: and they're way bigger than I thought too.
2: yeah, they're about one hundred and fifty pounds about five feet tall jeez. Right. So most of the chimps you've seen in your life are babies, right? Because people don't handle adults. Right. And so this chimp grabbed me by my left bicep and swung me over its head, full over its head into the floor five times. Just like bam, bam on the Flintstones. Bam, bam, bam. Five times. Tore my shoulder out of socket. Um, separated my bicep. It was it was hanging a foot below my arm. Oh my Everywhere God. they grabbed me, blood just came through the skin like squeezing orange juice oh. out of an orange. They tried to gouge my eyes out. They um they they slung me around and beat me against the floor. Probably covered about a hundred feet with me, just like a rag doll.
1: And they right? wouldn't just have been able to get them off you. Not no. at this point. Let me
2: tell you something. <laughs> That's hard one. That's a hard one life lesson. When you're attacked by chimps, you have no friends. No one is coming to rescue you. Yeah. You are never more alone. No, you're right. It was horrifying. Right. And the the sounds that they made were horrifying. The abandon with which they went at me, you you can't appreciate how fast they were. I told somebody if I had a had, had a gun in my hand with the hammer back pointed at them, I'd have never gotten a shot off. They hit me so hard they shit themselves
1: but why you what were you was... doing i mean were you being loud were you being
2: the uh, the trainer later said that it was probably just that i was i was a big guy yeah so they felt threatened by me and I was pointing a camera at them, oh, okay, which yeah. is kind of an aggressive thing, right? And these chimps, you know, to show a little sympathy for them, right? These chimps saw their parents killed in the wild and were taken to captivity when they're babies. They're, yeah. And they're smart enough to understand what that means.
1: Yeah, I, I, right? I'll be honest with you. I mean, I am a sympathy. I am one of those bleeding hearts for these animals. Yeah,
2: totally. Right. Sure. That's because you haven't had a couple of them on you yet. Okay. So, <laughs> so, um, to make a long story short, um, at some point, I'm not going to tell you for, for half a second, right? That I fought chumps, right? But I've got a fairly extensive martial arts training background. And so I know a little bit about how to break grips and how to get loose from things. And at some point I got to where all they had was my shirt. Okay. And I literally tore out of my shirt and ran and both my shoulders were out of socket and I was bloody from head to foot and concussed and, and. Pretty messed up, but I was I was in good enough shape to get away from them.
1: Did these animals get end up getting put down or anything? They
2: did not. Okay. They did not, and I did not pursue any legal recourse against them um, or anything for that reason. It was stupidity on everybody's point. You know, I take responsibility for my part in that, and those animals didn't deserve to be put down and the trainers didn't deserve to lose them. And, yeah. uh, you know, so, uh, you know, they're friends of friends. And so we just parted ways and
1: what an experience. But yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. So, I, so I have said many, many times, and I will say again, you don't know anything about yourself until you've been attacked by jumps. Okay. Right. You, <laughs> yeah. I don't
1: know if I want to know anything about myself. Actually, like
2: You really truly know whether or not you're a survivor yeah, you know, when you've been attacked by chumps. Well,
1: wow, you are so fascinating. Um, <laughs> Please. Okay. Um. Is there anything else? Like, w- just real quick, back to G and G. I mean, five yeah, years. Absolutely. Five years in. What's the long term plan?
2: So I, I do want to acknowledge one thing, um, which is that you know at at some point, as as great a partner as Kent was, and as much as he put into the site, he did have to step back. You know, and, and he ended up taking a, let's, let's say real job, sure. right, to support his family. He had three kids awfully hard to make, to support three kids in the fishing business. So at that point, you know, the, the thing became my responsibility, yeah. right? And the last thing I wanted in the world was a fishing site that was all about me. Like that would be, I wouldn't even read it. That would suck. So I've been really fortunate to have a lot of really good friends to come on and to contribute and to write and feel like right now we have such a, such a great, and there's just too many people to mention my name, but yeah. it's just such a great pool of contributors and people that have, have really, you know, enjoyed the site since day one and and are now such a big part of it. And I'm so happy to be functioning as an editor and writing a couple of days a week and having those people's voices on there, you know, and have a really talented videographer, Murphy Kane, who works with me and Justin Pickett, who helps out with the social media and also writes. And, um, I just have a really wonderful crew of folks who work with me all on a volunteer basis and out of the love of it. So that's that's a huge thing. And without those people, it would be nothing. And I just really want to make sure that they get the credit they deserve. And, you know, as far as moving forward into the future, like, you know, the, the main thing for me is I just, I really want to keep the site authentic. And I really want to continue to serve that community in the best way that I can. You know, we're looking at redesigning the site again right now and what that means to make it a little more user friendly. And at this point, it's such a mass of content. Right. There's so much information on the site that it's it's like drinking from a fire hose to try to, you know, to take it all in. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so I think in the future, we're going to, we're going to find ways to make that content more accessible on a search as you want basis. We're going to continue to get more video on the site because I think that's awesome because, you know, you don't always have time to, to read something, you know, sometimes it's fun just to be mindless and you know, watch a video and enjoy something more experiential.
1: Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me?
2: Well, I would like to say thank you for, for considering me to do this. I'm going to be honest with you. I was yeah. kind of, I was kind of uncomfortable at first. I was like, Oh my God,
0: what? Nice? she really
2: just wants to talk about me. I'm not uh,
0: I'm yeah. super comfortable with
2: that. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. And my pleasure. And, um, and thank you for your friendship and thank you for all that you do in the fishing community, because I think you're doing a great job. And not only as, you know, I know you get put up as the poster child for women in fly fishing all the time. Right. And you know, whatever, you know, know, but as an angler and as somebody who's passionate about conservation and passionate about some of the same things as me. Right. And being a good steward and spreading that word and getting that message out. That is good work and thank you for doing that.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks, Lewis. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening.